At a time like this, it's easy to see why local news is so important and why that news should be free for everyone who needs it to be. Your support of KCUR makes this essential reporting possible. If you can, please donate. KCUR.org slash give. And thanks. Good morning and welcome to Up to Date Special Coverage Coronavirus in Kansas City. I'm Steve Kraske. We begin today with a conversation with Joanna Wilson, whose husband Dennis just became Johnson County's first death due to COVID-19. Later, we check in with the mayor of Gladstone to see how her city is faring amid the outbreak. In our, in our second half, we'll talk about ways that hard-pressed families can get food on the table in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. But first, let's get a check of the news with KCUR, Sam Zeff. Sam, good morning. Good morning, Steve. We've been hearing from all around the country that there's a shortage of PPEs, that's personal protective equipment, and all of a sudden, it's become an issue here. I understand that Johnson County is out a call for donations. Tell me about that. Yeah, all of a sudden is right. Uh, yesterday afternoon, uh, Johnson County government uh, put out a request uh, for a number of things. Uh, they they created a uh, they created a graphic. Donations needed. It says in big bold letters: cloth masks, hand sanitizer. Clorox wipes. This is Johnson County government putting out a call for this. Uh, they've also said that you can find patterns and instruction guides about how to make masks, how to do that online. Uh, so all of a sudden, Johnson County, uh, one of the wealthiest counties in America, uh, is out there begging for uh, all these things, these uh, PPEs that first responders and people in hospitals need. You know, we also heard a plea from the KU Med Center. Yeah, they need the same thing, except they're looking for uh, those now hard-to-get N95 face masks. Uh, These are preferred face masks for people dealing with uh, coronavirus. Uh, They're expensive. Uh, The federal government has said that that they are in production, that they're shipping them out. Uh, But yesterday, KU Med Center uh, went public and said that if you've got those, uh, we'll take those donations. Hmm. And the Kansas City Police Department is saying it needs some help, Sam. Wow, this was really a surprise uh, to me to hear this. Uh, yesterday, uh, KCPD Chief Rick Smith held a uh, news conference, talked about various issues. But one of the things he talked about is that they're looking for masks. Uh, he says they will take them, even if they're handmade, made of cloth, that they could double them up with masks they already have. Uh, and they're looking for uh, temporal thermometers, 10 of those. Those are, the, those are those thermometers they aim at your forehead. Right. Uh, to see if you've got a fever. Uh, they want those to check their own uh, personnel, uh, but also they've been running into people on calls where they are concerned that they may have a temperature, which means they may have the coronavirus, so they'd like to deploy those uh, out into the, na- uh, out into the uh, patrol districts. But right now they're asking for donations for those. Okay, that's KQR Sam Zeff. Sam, thanks for the update. I appreciate it. My pleasure. This past Saturday, Dennis Wilson's death was the first in Johnson County due to COVID-19, the disease caused by the new coronavirus. The last time Joanna Wilson saw her husband was one week ago today at the hospital where Dennis was finally admitted and where he tested positive for the coronavirus. But the Wilson family's ordeal began back on March 12th. Here to talk about her husband is Joanna Wilson, who is in their home, currently quarantined because of her exposure to Dennis. She joins us now by phone and Joanna please accept our condolences on the loss of your husband. Thank you. 
Tell her. I want to set something straight real quick. Yes. Um, I, uh, he was admitted Sunday, Sunday night, actually early in the morning on Monday, a week ago this past Monday. And I did get to go visit him on Tuesday when um, they saw my heartfelt message on Facebook and mm. were able to figure out a way to get me there safely. Just just saying. So anyway, now I'm sorry. Yeah, we'll talk a little more about that. Tell our audience about your husband, because I know he was a teacher and a superintendent. Why was he an educator? Oh, Dennis was, you know, had a great love for, for young people. And, uh, you know, he started out in biology education, high school biology, and uh, loved teaching, loved educating. Um, and loved seeing people grow. Took kids on field trips everywhere mm. and not some overnight field trips and things like this where they would go and they'd camp out and then they'd uh, do some um, exploring in caves and things like this. This is all back in the late 60s and early 70s. Mm-hmm. He became and, a superintendent uh, and he wound up overseeing several different districts. Joanna, where were they? Okay, he was high school principal in Valley Falls, Ottawa, and then then he became a superintendent. Superintendent first in La Crosse, out by Hayes, and then uh, Labette County in Altamont. And then after he retired in Kansas, he agreed, agreed to be superintendent in Lamar, Missouri, for five years. He told him he'd give him five years and help him do some things in the district and then train a replacement. And uh, he did just that. And so he was superintendent in three districts. He had, and then, and, he had only recently retired. Do I have that right? In, ni- in 2013, he did. Mm-hmm. We've been retired that long. Uh-huh. And he, he was a magician, too, Joanna. What drew him to that? Oh, he's always enjoyed that. He remembered um, uh, a pretty well-known in the area magician, uh, in Bonner Springs, when he was a new teacher, they'd have teacher welcome breakfast for new teachers. And this man always emceed Roger Miller. He emceed the, the new teacher breakfast and always did magic. And he remembers always wanting to do that, but he actually did not get into magic until about 25 years ago. So he was older, but he got into it and loved it. And we go to uh, magic conventions around the country hmm. and... He belonged to the International Brotherhood of Magicians Ring 129 here in Kansas City. Hmm. Well, this ordeal for him, his illness, began on March 12. What was happening at that time for him? Well, um, okay, well, yeah. he, he started having some symptoms, just the upper respiratory thing like we all get. He had a little sore throat. And... Um, that was basically it to start with, and then that kind of went away. Had a little bit of cough then, that kind of went away, and then um, he chills became a problem. He chilled a lot, mm-hmm. especially later in the afternoon and into the evening, and uh, became fatigue became a problem. He lost his appetite, and we were getting kind of concerned about that. But uh, he went to urgent care on Thursday morning, and uh, of course, you know these are pretty common symptoms of just everyday viruses and um, 
what everybody calls the common cold and this mm-hmm. sort of thing. And they um, sent him home, you know, rest, drink plenty of fluids, same thing. At one point, he was tested for he was tested for influenza A and B. What what did those tests show? They were negative. Well, you know, he hadn't been tested for that, and it's a good idea to rule those things out because they all have basically the same symptoms. So when he went to uh, urgent care on Friday evening, um, we asked, "Can we at least rule out flu A and flu B?" and uh, then be sure it's not one of those two because you know the, then they were getting the, the the coverage and everything was uh, more and more on coronavirus but we want to rule those two things out and so they were ruled out on Friday evening and then he continued you know uh, to have um, um, chills he very I think he had a fever twice but it was real low and Tylenol would take care of it. These body aches that he had, they were better, mm-hmm. but Tylenol would take care of those. And then um, and then everything was better. Sunday, actually, he, he actually had more appetite and a little more energy, but at 9 o'clock Sunday night, he started to get short of breath. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, I'm kind of short of breath. And then as the time went on a little later and later, he was really getting more short of breath. So by midnight, I said, do you want to go to the ER? And he said, I think we need to do that. So that's when yeah. we went to the ER and at, things started rolling fast. At any point, did anyone suggest a test for COVID-19? And was there even uh, a testing kit available to do that? Yes, there was. Um, but there was pretty strict guidelines for doing the test. Um if they, as they as they evaluated him, and his oxygen was so low when he got to the ER that they had him on um, six liters of oxygen a minute, which is pretty high to have to give somebody, and just to get his oxygen up a little bit, not where it needed to be, but a little bit. And um, I was saying about the test, and they said, well, you have to have fever. And I said, well, he did a couple times during the week here. No, you have to have it at the time that the test is done. Hmm. And that's one of the rules. And that's a government thing. But were you um, thinking that he had it, Joanna? Well, I was thinking as time went on, you bet. I thought so, especially when the shortness of breath started. And then we get to the hospital and he needs, you know, his oxygen is so low. And then they did a chest x-ray. And his, in the three hours time from 9 p.m. until midnight when we got out there, and they did the chest x-ray, my husband's lungs were entirely involved. Mm. It was like the vir- it was like a viral storm. He, his, the pneumonia was entirely all through his lungs um, in three hours' time. And his lungs had been clear through the, both doctors, I mean, both urgent care um, visits. His lungs were clear. He didn't have any uh, coughing up anything any wheezing or anything until nine o'clock that night and it started and they still couldn't do the test because he didn't have a fever at the time Mm -hmm. the test would be done as a matter of fact i just said to the little nurse honey bring me a cup of coffee and i can make sure my husband has a fever Mm -hmm. that's the point i was trying to make i'll be willing to fudge if that's what it takes and i know that sounds terrible to say 
But if that was the only criteria, and the doctor did say, you know, I'd really like to test him for coronavirus, so I'm going to push through and see if somebody will give me authorization to do it. But they did not do it at that time. And they said, we're going to transfer you to the ICU at the main Advent Health Hospital. He was at one of the other Advent Health Hospitals. And so by the time, it was about 4 o'clock by the time they got him to um, the main hospital, 4 in the morning on Monday morning. Mm -hmm. And uh, they pushed him, you know, into the doors. And, you know, I didn't know, he didn't know. But I was barred at the door and couldn't go with him. So I was going to say they quarantined uh, you too at that point, right? And well, I would have been quarantined, but they barred me from coming in the hospital. I couldn't go with my husband. I couldn't see him at that time, and he was afraid. I was afraid, and off he went. And I was like forced to go home. And I would be in quarantine, of course, if he had it. I knew I would be, um, and until a test said yay or nay about the um, coronavirus, um, I came home and pretended that I needed to be, you know, pretended that he was positive. And they went ahead and did get authorization for the test and sent it in. And, you know, it takes, it's supposed to take 48 hours to get the results back. Right. But they, they did his at whatever time early that morning. Again, I wasn't allowed to be there. And I was frantic at home. And... Um, but the doctor called me at 7 o'clock that night and said that the test results were back and that it, that he was confirmed coronavirus uh, COVID-19. And all this time you're stuck at home, uh, Joanna, and I'm wondering, you said you were frantic. I can't imagine what that must have been like for you. Well, it was. I knew he'd have to be scared to death. The man couldn't get his breath. And it was rapidly getting worse. Mm-hmm. And I was at home. And so what, uh, what I did is I sat down and, and wrote um, a Facebook post about what happened that Monday. See, I was home all Monday. And it was by the grace of God and the magic of Facebook. And I know it can be negative, but I'll tell you what, Facebook was my hero. Because it got you back into but, the hospital, right? Oh, what happened is my Facebook post was shared 782 times and it got to places I'd never heard. I mean, I didn't know anybody. And I got a call on Tuesday morning, Joanna, how would you like to come see your husband? If you come to the hospital, call this number, call my cell number from the parking lot and I will bring you a mask and lead you to your husband. And the person who came to do that brought me a mask I put it on, got out of the car, and we started walking to the hospital. And she said, you don't know me. I've never met you. And I said, that's right. And she said, but your post showed up in my news feed this morning on Facebook. And I read that. And then I saw it said that he was at Advent Health. And I came to work, and I said to my team, this man's in our hospital. We've got to do something to help this family. This person with Morgan Powers, Vice President of Nursing of the Advent Health System. Yeah. And she, in mercy to me, she and her team got busy and said, we can make this happen safely for her. And that's what they did. And every day I got to go, 
I would drive over there, call them, someone would come out with a mask, walk me in, I would go into my husband's room, I would stay as long as I could, and there was no pressure from them hmm. at all. They were very generous. Well, uh, Joanna, I, I'm and, just... And I would leave and go home. And... You know, all of this seemed to come... Oh, that's uh, Joanna Wilson. Uh, we're going to try and redial her just to complete our conversation real quickly. Let's get her back on the line. Uh, again, you're listening to special coverage of uh, up-to-date coronavirus in Kansas City. And you're, I'm Steve Kraske. We've been visiting with uh, Joanna Wilson. She's the widow of Dennis Wilson, who was the first confirmed case, the first death in Johnson County due to COVID-19. Uh, again, uh, later on this hour, we hope to talk to the mayor of Gladstone. And still later this hour, we're going to be talking uh, about the ways that hard-pressed families can get food on the table in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. And we're going to get Joanna back on the phone here. I just want to wrap up our conversation here. You know, Joanna, all of this seemed to come out of nowhere. Uh, am I seeing that right? You mean the disease? The disease and this, this whole, this whole or- ordeal for you. Oh, yes. We have no idea where he got this. No idea. We've, we've not traveled recently at all, and we've really not been anywhere. We've gone to church. He goes to Home Depot. We run in Walmart. But if he can, you know, if it's just him, he goes, gets what he needs, and gets on out. He doesn't linger in a store and shop around like me. Um, We don't have a clue where he picked this up. And in the meantime, you are are self-quarantined now yourself, given your husband's, uh, how how contagious he was with COVID-19. So you're, you're home alone in the wake of all this. Absolutely. My children, who never got to see him through all this, my children, um, all are home quarantined except one. One did not get exposed to him. That's our older son who's a doctor there at uh, Advent Health. He was out of town mm-hmm. through a, the first few days of this. But the, the, my kids are home. They need me. I need them. But we can't be together. And they at least have their families. It's right. not it's still not easy, but but I'm home absolutely alone with a little white dog. That's all. Well, Joanna, um, yeah. again, our, our thoughts go out to you. We sure appreciate you sharing your story with us today. And again, our condolences and the loss of your husband. And we'll be pulling for you and thinking about you in the days ahead. Well, thank you very much. It's things like this that are going to help me get through. All the best, thank Joanna. Thank you very much. You bet. Bye-bye. Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas on Monday proposed the establishment of a $500,000 fund to support struggling small businesses during the coronavirus outbreak. Lucas had indicated he'd like an even larger amount of money to help out, but city government, unlike the federal government, can't print money. Cities that are smaller than Kansas City would probably struggle to come up with $500,000 or even $200,000. Now let's take a look at how some smaller municipalities are faring during the coronavirus outbreak. 
outbreak, what's their biggest need, how much help are they getting from state and federal governments, and what's their read as to when things will return to normal. Joining us first this morning is Gladstone Mayor Carol Souter. Mayor, welcome back. It's nice to have you here. Thank you, Steve. Always a pleasure to talk with you. You know, yesterday afternoon, I looked through the minutes of the last city council meeting posted on your website, which was February 24th. And unless I missed it, I don't believe the word coronavirus even was mentioned at that meeting. You had a meeting last night, just guessing here that the word was mentioned maybe a time or two. Last night we um, yeah, passed a resolution declaring, officially declaring a state of emergency in Gladstone. Um, it's a challenge for people to understand, as I've been seeing online and hearing from folks, uh, is that uh, for all the smaller cities, like the cities in Clay County, um, we don't have authority to declare a health emergency in our cities because in the 1950s when we created the county health department and we all agreed then that the county health public health director would have that authority hmm. and so people have been seeing that that's where the you know pronouncements had been coming from public health directors have been working and had conversation with mayors and other um, elected and um, managers staff people in cities in in kind of making the decisions but that's officially where the decisions come from to what extent is your city hall up and functioning at all right now? <laughs> well, we just began a new process uh, yesterday uh, in light of the emergency and in light of the, um, the new um, stay-in-place, uh, safe-at-home uh, mm -hmm. strategy. And so we have uh, most folks are working from home who can work from home. We've gone to a really creative, I think, to, uh, different approach to our shift schedules. I really have to give our city manager and his leadership team a lot of credit for being creative and diligent in this process. Um, so all essential functions are continuing. Um, all recreational, you know, entertainment kind of programs, et cetera, are, are canceled or postponed. Um, our parks and you know, outdoor, outdoor facilities remain um, open and cared for. Mm -hmm. So we've done a lot of cross-training in the, in the last um, 10 days to make sure that, for instance, the water treatment plant, that we have additional backup folks who are trained in case someone gets ill or if someone is quarantined, you know, for some reason and you know, can't come out of their house for 14 days. Um, so we're going to kind of a split-shift approach um, so that only half of a shift might be exposed at a time. Um, so, like, if it's a six-member shift, we'll, instead of all six working 12 hours, you know, three will work the first six and then um, reverse, and so that only three at a time might be exposed and then perhaps quarantined or, or you know, might become ill. Right. So we've done a lot of kind of shifting around of things to to keep all the functions going. The city hall itself is, is um, closed to the public, but people can reach City Hall uh, by phone or Internet. You know, there's people there <laughs> who are uh, working all the time to respond. I'm wondering, are there places where uh, a, a smaller town mayor like you can go to get best practices? And how are you coming up with these ideas to know how to respond in the most effective way possible? Well, this, this pandemic is, you know, is unusual kind of in many, many respects. We've been through lots of different kinds of things. Um, 
you know, in the past, um, but this one by dimension is kind of different. But we all belong to, like, the National League of Cities. Our city manager belongs to the state and national city managers associations, and those are often just great resources for, you know, constant conversation uh, online, everybody sharing what they're doing, what they know, um, plugging into uh, external resources like the CDC and others um, who have resources. Gladstone Mayor Carol Souter is my guest. I'm guessing, uh, Mayor, that in a perfect world, you'd establish an emergency relief fund for small businesses in Gladstone, much the same way that Kansas City, Missouri has done. Is that something you're able to do? Uh, no, we're not really able to do. We do have a, um, of course, relatively small um, loan fund in the city that, that pre-exists, you know, that we use to help small business owners upgrade facilities or facades or, you know, make some investments. So we, we do have that available, uh, and that will continue. Um, but, yeah, we don't, we run a pretty tight ship <laughs> in a city like Gladstone. We don't have a lot of um, extra. So... Um, we would look for normally in cases of emergency or really you know unusual circumstances there'll be some kind of state initiative or federal initiative and then of course our we we plug into those and we make sure that we take advantage of every kind of state or national um, opportunity that there is so, so given all that we'll, we'll, yeah so given all that what kind of impact are you seeing on your small businesses in Gladstone right now Oh, we got a lot of worried people. Uh, this is the hardest part about being in government. You know, where being an elected official is you have to balance everybody's needs. Um, and I kind of said last night at our council meeting as we passed this resolution, I think for the first time I feel like this is kind of almost a lose-lose, like, like nobody wins. Everybody's going to lose um, something out of this. Um, so we're just trying to keep people calm help them to read through the order and its exemptions and the definitions of essential businesses. Mm -hmm. Because there are many things that are essential that people don't immediately think of. Uh, and so you really have to think through, you know, what your, your uh, business does, what service it provides, who it helps, um, to analyze whether, you know, you need to shut down or not. But even the ones who are staying open... Like, you can be open, but it doesn't mean people are going to come and do business with right, you. Right, right. Hey, I, in a town like Gladstone, how, how do you get the word out that this emergency order has been implemented? But this is a big challenge. This has been, I think, one of the biggest challenges of the whole pandemic is particularly when we're in a situation where there's no national plan and there's no state plan. Hmm. Um, so cities and counties are just left to their own devices. And frankly, in this day and age, mass communication is a challenge because everybody interacts differently on the internet, right? Not everybody's on the kind of same wavelength. Nobody gets um, printed uh, news anymore. Um, it, it's, it's very difficult. And so we've kind of tried every avenue. So we actually literally have things posted on the, you know, outside the door on city hall. We're um, making sure that press releases get into the local Gladstone paper. Mm-hmm. Um, we are doing all of our electronic, we, you know, we do email, we do Facebook, we do Instagram, <laughs> we do all of those things. And so and on our website, we keep posting all those things. Um, but I have to say, you know, as a region, 
communication has been one of our biggest challenges with everybody deciding differently, you know, what's going on mm-hmm. when and who's doing what. It's, it's been very confusing to people. What would be helpful uh, for a town like Gladstone? What kind of help do you need from the state government? What kind of help would be useful from the federal government? Well, a plan would be the most helpful thing. That is, you know, a master strategy. So you kind of have an end game in mind. Like, you know, we know we're going to plan for the next 30 days. We know that, you know, here's the plan. And then when we'll look at these kind of measures and that'll help us to decide what to do next. We don't have any of that. Uh, and so a plan from, you know, anybody at state or a federal level, number one, would be the most, would be helpful. And then secondarily, of course, it's it's going to be um, relief. And, and how are we going to help people stay in business? How are we going to help people um, who are unemployed? You know, the job loss already is horrendous, uh, and it's just really beginning. So we need more help around that. You know, we there's not much we can do in Gladstone around unemployment benefits or things like that, right. uh, except to direct people. And so we that's what we need, is to be able to say to people, this is, okay, here's what the state's doing, here's what the feds are doing, you know, stay calm, you know, this is going to come in about what kind of time frame so you kind of can figure out if you can survive financially. But you're we sensing a, a, a lack of focus from state and federal government that, that might be helpful at a time like this. Oh, absolutely. Other kinds of emergencies, you you, you know, you, you kind of know. Mm-hmm. After a big tornado, which we've had a couple of in the last 20 years in Gladstone, direct hits, um, you know, FEMA comes in um, and the state comes in and and we all have a protocol. You kind of know what needs to happen around um, search and rescue and, you know, then just recovery and, and then who is uh, accountable under insurance and, again, under federal or state relief acts for who's going to pay for cleanup and rebuilding and all that. You know, you know kind of how the system works, uh, and so that really helps to plan mm-hmm. and helps to relieve stress. Uh, and right now, we, we just, you know, we're kind of in this vacuum of we don't know. We see what other countries are doing or have done. Some of them have been very successful, but because they started early and we are starting way late since we had no federal interest in this whatsoever. Um, well, so again, we can't really use their experience and mm-hmm. say, well, that's how it'll work here. <laughs> yeah. Well, Congress is taking a look at this uh, th- uh, third uh, stimulus package, if you will, that includes more direct aid to individuals. At least that's the intention of what's being talked about in Congress. Maybe some help from small businesses. How important is it in your mind to get that passed and get help to your residents? Oh, it's ASAP. I think we're all really frustrated at the how gridlock in Washington mm-hmm. can continue in the face of this, of, you know, an impending depression. Um, it is frustrating. But for me, I think that's one of the most important things that can happen, especially if we get a package that's actually going to help people and not just corporations to stockpile the cash, um, like happened the last time. So if people can be assured, you know, that they're, that again, they're not going to be homeless and bankrupt and not able to, you know, feed themselves, that would be really 
really helpful to reduce the stress level. Have you been able to get out and, and, and drive around town? Are you personally reaching out to your residents that way, or are you on the phone, Mayor? How's that working for you? Well, a little of both because, you know, again, now we're in lockdown, so just cruising around uh, is not, mm-hmm. you know, a recommended thing to do. Um, but people call and, you know, email and that kind of thing to kind of see. And just taking a drive around helps you to see, again, how people are complying or not. Um, our city staff did a lot of that uh, when we started this, the social distancing just to check on restaurants and bars and, you know, just to see who was participating voluntarily mm-hmm. and who needed encouragement to get with the program. Um, and so, you know, we, we had a few folks who didn't jump at the opportunity and then with staff going around and then, you know, tapping people on the shoulder, we, we got basically all of our um, hospitality sites, you know, restaurants, bars, et cetera, um, all came on board voluntarily uh, and, you know, honored the program. Right. Mayor, just now few, it's a little bit... Oh, go ahead. Well, just in the few seconds we have left, what's your biggest worry? <clears throat> my biggest worry? I have a lot of worries. Um, my biggest worry, I, I have to say, is um, the, lo- the long-term effect this is going to have on um, communities of, of all kinds. Because of the loss of employment, um, because of the lack of resources right now that we see to, you know, help people get through. Well, that's Gladstone Mayor Carol Souter. We appreciate her taking some time with us here today. When we come back, we'll talk about food insecurity in the midst of the coronavirus and what efforts are underway to help people get food on the table. I'm Steve Kraske, and you're listening to up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. And welcome back. I'm Steve Kraske. We're not always able to answer all your questions, uh, coronavirus questions, live on the air. So we're collecting some of those and finding the expert to answer them, then bringing those answers back to you. Last week, we we received several questions about visitation with non-custodial parents. So we turned to family law attorney Anthony Marino of Marino Law, and we asked him this. What general but step-by-step advice would you give to a parent when they have joint custody of a child or children, but regular visitation can't happen normally because of the the coronavirus warnings to limit travel and close physical contact beyond the necessary. Here's what Anthony had to say. Unfortunately, nobody could have foreseen this. In drafting parenting plans, which essentially are contracts between co-parents, I've never seen an extraordinary pandemic clause. The purpose of a parenting plan is to guide co-parents when they can't figure out a solution on their own. You know, I tell my clients that all the time. You all are free to do whatever you agree upon. A parenting plan is essentially there for when you disagree. As attorneys, when you call, I can never ethically tell you that it's okay to violate a court order. A court order is is there for a reason. It was signed by a judge, and judges are absolutely intent upon people and parties following a document that's got their signature on it. Um, now, the exception to that, obviously, is the standard of what's called irreparable harm, which is a very high standard, typically a medical emergency. So my advice at this point is you really need to consider 
is my child going to absolutely suffer irreparable harm? Otherwise, there's no guarantee. No attorney can tell you how any one judge is going to react in the future if you decide to withhold the child from the co-parent. So that being said, if your current parenting arrangement calls for you to exchange or the co-parent to pick up from school, the very most commonsensical thing to do is to continue to follow that order unless and up until you believe your child is absolutely going to suffer irreparable harm. I am absolutely 150% encouraging people to be as kind and creative as we can. The adversarial process tends to pin one party against the other. Um, People don't want to feel like they are losing, and that is not the mentality that we can have right now. I am encouraging people to, you know, let's let's not use this as an opportunity for future litigation. Let's come together right now for the benefit of our children to figure out what is best. That was family law attorney Anthony Marino. Well, as more and more Kansas Cityans face a new reality of layoffs and a world without paychecks, some may be wondering about that most basic of needs. How are they going to get food on the table? It's a big issue for some families, and it's one that's causing a lot of sleepless nights. Now, where where can people go for free groceries or to find a meal, and how can Kansas Cityans support that effort? Joining us to talk about what resources are out there are Joanna Sebelin. She's the Chief Resource Officer at Harvard. Joanna, good morning. Good morning. Jim McDonald is back with us. He's the Chief Community Investment Officer for the United Way of Greater Kansas City. Jim, nice to have you. It's great to be here, Steve. And if our listeners have questions about keeping your pantry stocked or want to find a way to help those uh, in need, give us a call, 816-235-2888, or you can tweet us at KCUR up to date, or you can post your question at KCUR's Facebook page. Joanna, what are you seeing when it comes to the demand for inexpensive or even free food out there? What's, What's happening to the demand out there? We're seeing a huge increase, Steve. Um, Just yesterday, you know, normally we might pick 5,000 cases of food a day to serve all of the member agencies and their clients. Harvesters has 760 member agencies across 26 counties. Uh, Yesterday, we we picked 12,000 cases, so our agencies know that there's a huge increase. The other thing that we realize is, uh, you know, there are 341,000 people out there that are already food insecure that our network was servicing, um, and that we know that with all of the layoffs, that's increased. We estimate that this, if unemployment um, goes up to 20%, we estimate that we would have to, the need is going to increase to about 64%. And that 341,000 number then, Joanna, would grow to what? Well, it would grow to uh, almost double. Mm. That's a lot of people. Uh huh. And, and, you know, already uh, just earlier this week, uh, the NPR poll came out that said that one in five had already lost their jobs. Well, that was about 20%. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're seeing enormous increases. Jim McDonald, again, with the United Way of Greater Kansas City. What's your sense of how the need for services in general are spiking as the pandemic takes hold here? 
Well, one of our uh, best barometers for increasing need in the community are calls to United Way's 211 information and referral line. Right. And, um, you know, we didn't really see much of an uptick uh, until about a week ago. Um, and over a couple day period, um, we saw a double uh, digit increase uh, in the number of calls. Um, and in particular, a dramatic rise in the number of calls for basic services, uh, food, uh, and, and assistance related to housing stability. I'm wondering what you foresee a couple, three weeks down the road, Jim. Well, we'll just see this trend, um, you know, continue. Uh, the last time we saw a major uptick in uh, community needs uh, through our information and referral line uh, was back uh, during the recession in 2008-2009, and um, we expect to see a similar, if not uh, more significant, increase uh, in the in the coming weeks and months. Joanna, again, with Harvesters, is this something of an all-time high when it comes to food insecurity in this community, at, or at least going back a few decades? Yes, I would say so. Uh, certainly, we we went through the economic downturn. Harvesters also has experience in disaster relief, you know, but that's generally localized, and the whole community can begin to support and so forth, and your regular operations don't don't necessarily uh they're not necessarily impacted but in this case this is the highest we've ever seen it none of us have had uh experience with pandemics certainly the 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 whole hospitality industry in kansas city is affected as well as other small businesses so this is this is a much greater scale i would say this is much higher than ever joanna bottom line this for me do we have enough food to meet the demand today we're trying. We're trying. You know, we've had to shift to emergency status. Uh, normally, we would depend on donated food. Uh, we've seen drop in donated food, obviously, because the retailers are trying to, uh, and the manufacturers and distributors are trying to keep the grocery stores stocked. So we've had to revert to purchasing uh, food to be able to bring it in by the truckload so that we can uh, get food out through our mobile pantries, keep those volunteers and, and clients safe. Um, so it, we've seen it, we've seen drop off in donations. We've also seen drop off in volunteers. Uh, just last week, we pulled a number and realized that we had to cancel three three thousand five hundred no volunteers that would normally come in to sort that donated food. So, mm -hmm. so we've seen a drop off in everything. So when you say you're on emergency status right now, yeah. is that because you're now at a point where you have to go out and actually purchase the food? That's correct, Steve. Hmm. Um, what can people do to help you right now and to respond to this this crisis that we're seeing in town right now when it comes to food insecurity? Well, the first thing we're asking people to do is donate. They can go to our website and donate. Donate cash, you're saying? Donate cash, yes, donate cash. That helps us be able to purchase the food that we need to be able to get it in. The other thing we're asking is we do still need some volunteers. We are um, we have limited the number of volunteers, of course, to about 30 people a shift. We have three sections where um, 
people can maintain social distancing, you know, t- a 10 in a section in our warehouse. And uh, if, so if people can feel feel their way clear to being able to do that, they can also go and, and sign up to volunteer on our website. But again, we're limited to 30 people a shift. But just to be clear, you're saying that cash donations are the mo- would be the most helpful at a time like this. That's exactly right. We okay. need to purchase more food. Jim, you say point blank that the community is not prepared for this. I- explain that to me. Well, uh, I think, you know, the, the, the major um, area in which the community is not prepared is the extent to which we're going to see unemployment rise and um, increasing numbers of households um, unable to main their, maintain their housing stability. Um, one of the uh, major needs that United Way responds to through 211 are, uh, is calls for uh, rent assistance and financial assistance to uh, pay utility bills. Um, and um, there, in an ordinary year, there isn't enough resources available to meet that particular need. Um, so I expect, you know, this crisis to only exacerbate that problem. Um, and I think it really just underscores the importance of the role that government must play in this. Um, we're all eagerly awaiting uh, the, the passage of, uh, you know, the response bill uh, by Congress. Um, and it's critical that that package include cash payments to households. Um, and ideally, for as long as possible, one-time ta- a one-time payment isn't going to ensure um, that all the people are suddenly facing housing instability remain housed. I was going to say that's one of the big issues before Congress right now that we talked to Congressman Cleaver about yesterday. One big question is, is it a one-time payment or multiple payments? Jim, it sounds like that you're recommending from your vantage point multiple payments going forward. Oh, without question. Yeah. Okay. We're talking about food insecurity here in the Kansas City area and what we're doing about it in the wake of the pandemic. Our phone number, 816-235-2888. You can tweet us at KCUR Up to Date. Again, you're listening to Up to Date special coverage of coronavirus in Kansas City. Let's go to some phone calls here. And Father Justin from Thelma's Kitchens on the line. Father Justin, nice to have you. Good morning. Thank you for taking the call. You bet. Go ahead. Well, you know, I want to share that at Thelma's Kitchen, we served almost 300 meals yesterday in three hours. That's 100 meals an hour and double the number of usual meals per day. We're a social venture, donate what you can restaurant. But of course, now we're serving at the front door and just giving food away. We're seeing people who are not only homeless, but really our focus is on the working poor and people who are jobless or recently lost their jobs. So I wanted to let everybody know that at the corner of 31st and Troost, Reconciliation Services and Thelma's Kitchen are still serving and available. The mayor has designated us as an essential service. I'm wondering, Father Justin, you say you doubled your your uh, number of lunches yesterday. Was that enough or were there still people that, that left uh, who you weren't able to serve? There were still people. We serve from 11 to 2. We're going to try to expand those hours, but to be honest, we have uh, limited staff capacity. We've sent home all of our volunteers who are 59 and older, and you know a number of our staff are of that age. And so, all- and we just lost Father Justin here. Let me go to another phone call here, Kyle. Uh, Kyle, you're on up today. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Well, thank you. Go ahead, Kyle. Yeah. Um, so I'm with the Rieger. Um, I'm 
normally I act as the general manager of the Rieger, but uh, recently we have kind of switched gears and we've opened the Crossroads Community Kitchen. Um, Tell us about that. What is it? So we we began uh, doing this work um, out of what we saw was a necessity um, for a service for our community in a time of public health and what's quickly becoming an economic crisis. Um, we were looking for the best way to serve our community and also help our employees at the same time. Um, you know, being in the service industry, um, the restaurant industry, we quickly realized that we weren't going to be able to do what we normally do. And that's, you know, full service, uh, dining right. meals. And, um, you know, quite frankly, the, the type of food and style of food that we serve didn't really seem to match the need of our community right now in the crisis. Um, so what we are doing is we, we switched over to a donation based kitchen where we are serving meals every day on a pay as you're able basis. Um, and we just really wanted to be, be able to give back to anybody in our community that might be, uh, food insecure at this time and just looking for meals. Um, Kyle, where can people go, where can people go get one of those meals? Um, so we're still at the Rieger. We're operating out of the Rieger. That's 1924 Maine. Mm. Um, we are open, um, I guess to the public from two to four every day where you can come in and get a meal or several meals for your family. Um, usually those are going to be hot meals. Um, we are there starting at 10 a.m. every day. Um, and recently, well, over the past week, we've started taking more large orders for delivery and drop off. Um, for example, yesterday we served, um, 1,300 meals hmm. out the Wow. Out of the restaurant before we actually open to, I guess, like the public at, um, at two o'clock. And, you know, those meals are going out to hospitals, um, senior centers, kids centers, um, churches, um, really any, anybody who calls and is looking for large quantities of meals. If we're able to deliver, um, the, that quantity we'll we'll make it and we'll try to get it out um, i'm gonna have to move on but i really appreciate what you're doing and again your address is 19 what again on main 1924 1924 thanks again kyle appreciate it thank you father justin from thelma's kitchen on truce is back with us father i'm sorry we lost you go ahead no problem phone issues i i wanted to share that when people are coming in for a meal we're also still offering all of our social services so our number of IDs and birth certificates, work permits, all of our housing and rental assistance has really spiked, like Jim was talking about at the United Way. So we're, we're really serving uh, double the number of meals, but then also wanting to get the community to know that all of our other services are still available. We're seeing a lot of new people in this time. How can people connect, Father Justin? Certainly going to selmaskitchen.org and sponsoring a meal from the safety of your home, sponsoring a number of meals for the day. Of course, we're serving about 300 a day right now, and that number is increasing. We're giving those away for free like others, and it's tremendous to see the outpouring. If you're um, of the age and younger than 59 and you want to volunteer, we still do need volunteers to come in, also to make deliveries for us. We have about 100 low-income seniors in our foster grandparents program that we're beginning to make deliveries to them to make sure that they have wow. what they need. 
Father, thanks for calling. Appreciate it, and best Thank of you. luck to you. You bet. All right. Bye-bye. Joanna Sebelin again with Harvesters. You know, you were talking before about the drop-off in food donations, and I was surprised to hear that because you hear of these different Chiefs players buying like 90,000 meals at a crack through Harvesters, and people might have uh, been assuming that Harvesters was in pretty good shape. Oh, well, those are dollar donations. That's how many meals those dollars buy that they donated. So that's what we're talking about. We're, we're translating that into food that's coming in. I'm guessing that you've seen a drop-off from the restaurant industry, too. I think you've mentioned this in terms of food donations they make on a regular basis. How dramatic of a fall-off have you seen there, Joanna? Well, I think if you take the whole retail retail industry, the whole retail food industry, we're looking at drop-offs there. You know, we, we have what we call grocery retail store pickup. Um, uh, restaurants have obviously donated us donated to us a product. Uh, so with all of those things closed or refocused, that's, that's been a huge drop-off. Jim, are you seeing a decline in financial donations to the United Way right now, given uh, the, the changing employment picture? Uh, that has not surfaced yet. Uh, in fact, we're actually seeing an uptick in donations um, because we've launched an appeal specific uh, to our COVID-19 response efforts. Uh, we're part of a collaborative effort of area funders um, to uh, launch this fund. And while it's largely foundations, uh, we're accepting donations from individuals as well. So people can go to www.unitedwaygkc.org to contribute. Right. Um, and we're real pleased with the response that we're seeing. Joanna, before this this hour gets away from me here, where can people go to get free groceries and where can anyone go to get a free meal? Talk, walk us through that if you would. Sure. I think the best way, again, remember we serve 26 counties. So the best way to be able to do that is to go to Harvester's website, harvesters.org. You can click on the, the page that pops up that says Get Help. And when you get into that particular page, you can put in your zip code mm -hmm. and you can, uh, then there's a drop down as to how many miles you might be willing to go. So 5, 10, 20, 30 miles. And all of those agencies that we believe that we know are still open uh, would pop up. Now, I would only say this. Obviously, we've had some agencies closed because many of those agencies are staffed by volunteers mm -hmm. and they're smaller pantries. So, but you can take a look, find a couple. You might want to call, make sure that they're hours of operation. You can also uh, drop down as to whether you're looking for a pantry, a community kitchen, or a mobile pantry. I would encourage people to look for mobile pantries. Uh, because those are the ones we're moving out rather quickly. I do know that some of our kitchens, and you heard Father Justin, uh, and also um, from the Rieger, uh what a lot of our kitchens are doing are serving uh, grab-and-go meals. So what about people who I, don't have computer access, Joanna? So one of the things that they can do, um, they can call harvesters, and we can help walk them through that. Okay. Jim, what about Meals on Wheels, the service for senior citizens? What's the status of that service at a time like this? Sure, that, that service is alive and well. So that's um, home-delivered meals uh, for older adults or people with disabilities um, who don't have the ability to, to get to uh, you know, a congregate meal site. Um, 
and uh, that program is alive and well. There was increased funding in, in the recent uh, legislation that, that did make its way through Congress um, that has expanded capacity for that program. Um, there are um, a dozen or so organizations that uh, run those meal delivery programs in the Kansas City Metro, and uh, we have uh, contact information for all of them on our website at 211kc.org. Uh, people can also call uh, 211, the information and referral line, um, again, assistance um, from a live uh, call specialist in finding the, uh, the, the meal delivery program uh, that serves their community. Are you having any trouble getting volunteers to, to man that operation, Jim? Um, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but uh, I have not heard um, any stories of uh, the programs not being able to continue to operate. Um, a, a lot of them rely on volunteers, but a lot of the programs also use paid staff. Um, and so, um, from what I understand, those programs are up and running and have not seen an inter interruption in service. Okay. Um, so I, th I think that continues to be a good resource for, for people who qualify. Joanne, I got 30 seconds here. You've talked about this new trend of people setting up something called virtual food drives. What is that? So, you know, we got a lot of support from corporate. Uh, and organizational groups. And so what we can do is set up a virtual food drive for their group and they can organize their people. You know, obviously they can't do it in their businesses or organizations, but th again, it's online as okay. to uh, that's where they can give help. That was the voice of Joanna Sebelin again with Harvesters. We were also joined by Jim McDonald, the Chief Community Investment Officer for the United Way of Greater Kansas City. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, you Steve. You've been listening to up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. I'm Steve Kraske. We'll see you tomorrow.